there is actually a, a positive reason why there's a disjunction between school knowledge and and, and knowledge of everyday life. And so it, it's not a criticism of it, the, the, the subject-based curriculum to say that, in fact, you may not use it in your everyday life when you grow up at all, because what it is is offering you a way of thinking beyond your experience. That is the absolutely crucial thing of what schools can offer, which you never get if you, in fact, try and model your school system on your everyday life. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. This is a special episode because the Rethinking Education podcast is now one year old. Yay! It's been quite a year. We've done 27 episodes, uh, roughly one every two weeks, as well as six campfire conversations, which are well worth a listen or a watch if you haven't done so already, and a few bonus episodes scattered here and there. Also, something really exciting happened this week, in my mind at least. On SoundCloud, where the podcast is hosted, it says that we've had over 32,000 plays. And I've always assumed that this was an aggregate count of how many times it's been played on all kinds of different devices and podcast players. But it turns out that this is not the case. Over on Apple Podcasts, we've had a further 26,000 listens, about 5,000 on Spotify and various others, which brings the total up to at least 60,000 and perhaps many more than that, which is sort of amazing. So it means that the audience is at least double the size that I initially thought it was. So hello to everybody who I didn't think was listening, but who now is. <laughs> so I would like to start this episode by saying a massive thank you to every one of you for listening to this and for all of the incredible support that I've received throughout this last year. I've said before that I would do this podcast even if nobody listened. I get a huge amount out of these conversations, but the fact that so many people seem to listen to them and get something out of it makes it all the more worthwhile. Anyway, today I am speaking with Michael F.D. Young, as you well know, because you clicked on the thing, Emeritus Professor of Education at the UCL Institute of Education. Michael has been a towering figure in the field of sociology of education for over five decades. He's written and edited many books throughout this career, including Knowledge and Control in 1971, Bringing Knowledge Back In in 2008, and Knowledge and the Future School 2014, to name just a few. You may have noticed a theme in those book titles. Michael writes about knowledge a lot. Hence the title of this podcast, From Knowledge of the Powerful to Powerful Knowledge, which kind of works as a succinct summary of the journey that Michael has been on in his career. There's a bit of a story as to how Michael came to be on the podcast. Like Michael, I also work at the UCL Institute of Education, and a few months ago I received an email from my colleague, Dr. Rupert Hyam. Hello, Rupert, if you're listening. I've known Rupert for several years now because he used to work at Cambridge University where I did my PhD. Rupert told me that he knows Michael Young quite well because he recently married Rupert's mother. I joked with him that his family is practically academic royalty. Anyway, at some point, 
Rupert told Michael about the Rethinking Education podcast, presumably over the dinner table one day, and Michael noticed that I've had Guy Claxton on the podcast previously. In fact, twice. If you listen to the episode where Guy talks about neo-traditional myths, the most popular episode to date, by the way, you may recall that we discussed Michael's work a bit. Guy was quite critical of Michael's work, and in particular his notion of powerful knowledge, and he also dedicated a whole section of his recent book, The Future of Teaching, to critiquing Michael's ideas. Rupert pointed out that many people have mischaracterised and misunderstood Michael's work over the years, people from both the progressive and the traditionalist sides of the education debate, and he suggested that it would be a good idea to give Michael an opportunity to set the record straight and, in Rupert's words, to set out his intellectual journey in all its complexity. Naturally, I agreed that this would be an excellent idea. Over the summer, I took a deep dive into Michael's work, starting with Knowledge and Control, which came together, as I mentioned before, in 1971, following an infamous meeting in a hotel bar with Basil Bernstein and Pierre Bourdieu, a meeting that we will discuss in the course of this conversation. A few weeks ago, I met Michael for a very enjoyable lunch in Russell Square, sitting under the trees with a lasagna and a beer and discussing life, the universe and everything. And to my delight, Michael agreed that it would be a good idea to follow through on Rupert's suggestion to join me for an extended conversation about his remarkable career to date. As always, listeners, this was an absolutely fascinating conversation and it's also a conversation that I think many people will find surprising, both the hardline traditionalists and the hardcore progressives among you. You know who you are. And I, lo <laughs> and I look forward to hearing what people make of it. Please do let me know what you think. If you enjoy these podcasts even half as much as I do and would like to support the show, you can now become a patron of the podcast. There are various benefits associated with doing so, including a searchable written and audio transcript of every episode to date, a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about learning to learn that I co-authored with my amazing friend Kate McAllister, and there's also now a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops that you can access on metacognition, self-regulation, oracy, and self-regulated learning. Alternatively, if you would like to express your gratitude by buying me a coffee, there's a link in the show notes where you can do that instead. Thank you very much to everybody who has kept me caffeinated to date. It is much appreciated and helps keep the podcast sustainable for the long term. Just one word before we begin. Michael is slightly hard of hearing, and so I had to speak a little more slowly and clearly and loudly than I normally would, especially towards the beginning of the episode, this is no bad thing, probably, because I often rattle on at 10 to the dozen, but you may wish to adjust your playback speed a little, or maybe even your volume, who knows. Anyway, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Professor Michael F.D. Young. I hope you enjoy the show. Professor Michael Young, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Very glad to be involved. Absolute pleasure to speak with you. So um, in the year 2000, I was fortunate enough to see David Bowie play at Glastonbury. And at one point, he introduced a song, I think it was Changes, 
And he said, I played this song the last time I played here in 1971. And it was one of those moments when you think, wow, you know, you've been playing at Glastonbury for longer than I've been alive. And I had a similar feeling when I was reading about, about your career. I started working with the Institute of Education in, I think it was 2017. And you were still there then, but but you'd also, I think that was your 50th year, wasn't it? Yeah. You, so you worked there for, for over 50 years. Um, and as I say, you know, your work has had a, a significant impact on people's thinking and we can debate the extent to which it has impacted on on what happens in schools across that that time span which is a really remarkable achievement <laughs> you're looking very humble and sort of shrugging your shoulders for the benefit of listeners um and so i'd like to take you back and so to, so that we can sort of work through this through this journey um if you like but first of all, I'd like to just give you the opportunity to address a couple of things that I think illustrate the ways in which your work may have been um, misunderstood or mischaracterized. So um, firstly, there was a, a profile, there was a piece in The Guardian uh, a few, two or three years ago, um, which had the headline, The Counterculture Class Warrior Who Turned to Gove. Um, and when we met for lunch last week, it struck me that you're not particularly happy with either of these <laughs> of these characterizations, that you were neither a counterculture class warrior, whatever that is, nor that you recently turned to Gove. Um, so so can we can we explore that first of all? What's your sense of, of that, that that way of characterizing you? Well, basically, I um, I did an interview uh, with the journalist, and um, uh, he produced an article later. And uh, I didn't recognize in what I'd said to him, in what he wrote, because it was clear to me that he had another story which he thought was good journalism, and he was going to fit the things that I said into that story. Um, and uh, so I was, I realised that in fact I was possibly, that I hadn't done too many interviews with uh, journalists, that in fact I was a bit naive, that I thought that they would, in a sense, more take up or construct the story I was telling rather than their story and use me as kind of data. Uh, but I should have been aware of that and I might have had a rather different interview. Um, and, um, but uh, nevertheless, it, it, it happened. But I, I was uncomfortable um, of, of it, but more because of my friends reading it and them saying, is that really Michael? Uh, and um, so I found it, I, I found it, in, it uncomfortable and embarrassing. Although obviously I can see a story of, of, of my own that was rather different than that uh, in what that article said. Okay. But, uh, 
So that that's my start, starting point in a sense was the the difference between a person's construction of their biography and a journalist's story. Yes, yes, and I think that his I think that his basic idea was to was to draw a contrast between a book that you were that you were famously you know that you edited in in a, fa- a very well known book uh, in 1971, Knowledge and Control. Um, and we'll talk about that in some depth shortly. But it's, it, essentially, it was it, it, I would characterize it. I don't know if this is a fair sort of summation, but it's about this idea of knowledge of the powerful, and that the the the, the, the the school curriculum was was sort of you know was created by people with powerful interests who were interested in maintaining those interests. And he was contrasting that with your more recent work, which was about powerful knowledge. Which was more about, you know, recognizing the value of traditional subject disciplines, and I think that that was that he was trying to sort of to, like you say, to to shape that into something that it that it wasn't quite in reality. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's. Uh, um, I I think that's a, that that's certainly a, a, a reasonable in, in interpretation. I think that one has to remember some of the the very different contexts of the two ends, if you like, of the story. Um, I I had only been uh, a university teacher for two years, maybe three at the most, three years, I suppose, when the book was thought about and put together. Um, and following the British Sociological Association annual conference in Durham in 1970. I had never published anything before, uh, and so I was very much a neophyte uh, academic, and nothing could have surprised me more than to find myself being asked to put together a book that in fact focused on the new direction, possible new directions for the field I was specialising in, the sociology of education. It was it was a surprise to me, and uh, I rather than any sort of particular recognition of who I was, because I hadn't done anything to warrant that position uh, at all. And I think that 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 was the first thing. And the second thing is that in fact there it was there was no great fanfare. When Knowledge Control was published, there was no launch. There were very few reviews. It, it, I mean, I think what really took it off was that, in fact, it got adopted by uh, the Open University as a set book for their first sociology of education uh, course for serving teachers, their first B.Ed. course. And this meant that it, in a sense, that many people who came across it wouldn't have otherwise done. And in fact, some people liked it and some people didn't. Uh, and I think that's what gave it. And it's only really later, in by the time uh, it became quite a high profile book, I, in a sense, had almost had moved on because I was still in the early uh, years of my academic life. Um, and so that's, that that's in relation to, to to that context. Okay. And all in relation to the the more current contexts, um, the book that probably got me the publicity 
which I only partially welcome, uh, obviously, um, was not was was in a set a book I wrote with my colleague David Lambert uh, called Knowledge in the Future School, um, and whereas the book, which in a sense, as the if you like the experienced academic, I wanted to make a contribution to my disciplinary field was bringing knowledge back in. That had quite a big impact within the academic world, but it didn't have the wider impact that um, powerful knowledge, the, the book Knowledge and the Future School. And the other thing perhaps to say is that in fact, uh, the, I mean, if we go back to knowledge and control, it was very much part of a time when the, when radical critiques were in fact part of what was happening in the universities. And almost every discipline had its radical strand, radical psychology, radical science, radical education, all those. And in a sense, because I was questioning the givenness of the existing curriculum in that book, particularly in the introduction, uh, of that book, yeah. it fitted into that wider kind of cultural critique, and it opened up questions that had not been asked at all. And so it was that element, the opening up of questions, that I look back and think, well, I was achieving something, it was something worthwhile. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, and Go on. And just the other thing, uh, the other thing was that, in fact, the other thing I think it did was to give a certain group of teachers uh, who came across it when they were doing their B.Ed. Uh, through the OU, a, se a sense that they had some, some role in the education system. They didn't need to take it as given. Uh, they could actually question it, and they had a right to question it. And there was a, a movement which didn't last very long, but was quite an important one that to some extent followed from knowledge and control called, it was called the new sociology of education. That wasn't my title. It was the title of one of the teachers at one of the polytechnics. And that sort of took off for a brief period. And I think that also was a, a significant influence. It, it In a sense, it, it politicized and allowed uh, an area of education and, and indeed, education itself, it politicised what the education was and not just the fact that many people were excluded from it, which was the traditional way of critiquing the English education system. That in, It was biased in social class terms by those who had access, whether it's to grammar school or university or good jobs or whatever. Part of the reason that I wanted to start this podcast is because I think that that radical tradition of rattling the bars of the cage and, and questioning, you know, trying to rattle the foundations even of some very long-lasting, long-held ideas has sort of fallen out of favour. And there was lots of books that were being written around that time, you know, this time, the sort of late 60s, early 70s, um, think books like Teaching as a Subversive Activity and the work of John Holt and, you know, like Ivan Illich and, and so on. There were lots of people who were asking really fundamental questions about whether this whole idea of school was even a good idea. And it seems that, 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 that those questions have gone away, but I'm not sure that they have gone away. It's just that for some reason, 
people stopped talking about them. And that's, I, I would like to revive some aspects of that radical tradition through this through this podcast and i absolutely welcome the, you know your comments that even though it was of its time it was still an incredibly useful thing to be doing to be questioning things on that fundamental level um and then the second part of that headline that said that you turned to gove um i i, I listened to a, a, an interview that you gave with martin robinson recently in which you said that you're no fan of gove um, so I'm just interested to hear uh, your thoughts on on that and, and the way that your work has sort of been co-opted by people in the Govian sort of knowledge-rich tradition in more recent years. How do you feel about the, the more recent interpretations of your work? Well, I think what it highlights is that the question of knowledge is a very tricky one. Uh, in terms of what we mean and what its implications are. And I think that, in a sense, in contrasting the idea of a curriculum as knowledge, uh, powerful knowledge, rather than knowledge of the powerful, I was saying a very different thing to, in fact, Gove, who was saying, let's go back to Matthew Arnold and say that, in fact, we need a curriculum based on the best that's been thought and said. So those were actually two very different things, uh, although they had some similarity. And I think that the some of the Gove people found it useful, or the Gove, the people who were appointed by Gove, found it useful to link them, to, to blur the differences. And there was a, a curriculum framework document which was produced in uh, for commissioned by Gove in uh, 19 it was published by nine, in 1911 and it's not it's not a bad document but uh, in a sense it was a, it was Govian version of knowledge but in fact it actually it drew on my book uh, bringing knowledge back in uh, for support and in a sense and now this is a price that any any academic has to accept that, in fact, their ideas are taken up in different contexts from the ones they hold. And in a sense, that issue, the relationship between, if you like, theoretical knowledge and practical policy, both practical policy politicians and what teachers can do, is a, been a tension and a concern for me throughout my whole of my career. Yes, yes. And so I think we'll get into this later on, but just briefly, since you touched on it, how would you how would you distinguish between your idea of powerful knowledge and this Govian idea of the best that has been thought and said? Well, if my when I talk about powerful knowledge, I also and, and in a sense, it's not me, it's colleagues that I've worked with, like Joan Willow from what, Cape Town. I've done a lot of work with him. Um, what, what we wanted to stress is, first of all, that there is, in any field, there is the best knowledge. And in a sense, powerful knowledge says that. Uh, and the second thing it says is that, in fact, uh, there's no principled reason why any child, whatever their background, wherever they come from, shouldn't have access to 
that best knowledge. So the best history, the best physics, the best chemistry. And, uh, and we were at a time then of, in a sense, challenging the idea that, in fact, there were academic subjects for a small group of people who went on to university, and for those who didn't, they had something much more vocational, much more skill-oriented. And yeah. we were arguing against that argument, that it was it's not knowledge for some and skills for others. It's knowledge for all. And then there's a question, two things. One is the political question, why is it so unevenly distributed? The other is the pedagogic question, why is it actually teachers find it difficult to teach physics, say, for, in fact, for, for many kids in school? Yes, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, I think we're going to get into this in, in greater depth uh, later on. But firstly, I just wanted to, so while we're addressing um, misconceptions, I'd like to, to pick up on the, um, the way that, so, so Guy Claxton was previously a guest on this podcast. In fact, he's been on twice. And I know that you know Guy. Um, and he said when, when we spoke um, that, you know, that he'd met with you for lunch and so on recently and that you had sort of tried, in his words, he said that you had really tried to understand one another's perspectives but that somehow that, that there was some sort of a fundamental divide and he and he critiqued your work in um in his recent book um the future of teaching and the myths that hold it back um and i think that just for the benefit of listeners to sum to summarize claxton's critique if you like he used he quotes from another book by a man called david perkins a book called future wise in which he says for basic education expert amateurism is more important than expertise educational resources should go toward building a robust flexible understanding of fundamentals which demonstrably even good students generally don't attain, more than advancing students rapidly towards sophisticated aspects of a discipline that rarely come up in the lives that they are likely to live." Close quote. So essentially, I think he's just questioning how powerful is the knowledge that's in the traditional subject-based curriculum, given that much of it is not that relevant to the everyday lives of of those young people. So what's your understanding of Guy's take on on knowledge and powerful knowledge? And what is it that you think he he misses or overlooks in his analysis? No, I think that's a very interesting question. And what I think it doesn't address is the question of why we have schools. And uh this only came to me clearly um, about a, perhaps a decade ago when I was invited to give a talk to the Royal Society of Arts in a series they had on curriculum issues. And uh, it was later published uh, of what is Otter Schools for as, as the title. And um, what that addresses is the I think the fundamental question is to why, in England anyway, um, we realised we only in fact established education, uh, school education, for all pupils in 1870. Um, 
late on, if you like, in industrialization and, in democ and even relatively late on in democ democratization. Um, and we, we actually did that because we recognized, the society recognized that there was knowledge that young people need access to that they can't that they can get access to at school but they don't have access to in their everyday lives so in a sense there is actually a, a positive reason why there's a disjunction between school knowledge and and, and knowledge of everyday life and so it, it's not a criticism of it, the the subject-based curriculum to say that, in fact, you may not use it in your everyday life when you grow up at all, because what it is is offering you a way of thinking beyond your experience. That is the absolutely crucial thing of what schools can offer, which you never get if you, in fact, try and model your school system on your everyday life. And that is the implication um, uh, of those people, some of those people who've actually criticized, um, I think, my work, that they haven't kind of grasped that disjunction issue. That, and the question then, how do you do that? How do you organize it? Is another complex question, but it is an important starting point. And in a sense, it's why the, uh, the elite wanted were the first group who wanted to have schools institutions separate from everyday life for their students their their children right yes yes it is an important distinction and while we're on this can i just can we talk about last week do you remember we spoke about an excerpt from a book that i came across in a book by Ivor goodson um, who I know that you know well, um, and it was in yes, reference to another book called Science for the People by David Layton. That's and right, I, yes, yes. I, I know that you know this because we spoke about it last week, but just for the benefit of listeners, this is quite an extended excerpt, but this really changed, like our conversation last week really helped me to understand something that I had previously not understood. So this is about the way that the science curriculum was created in the 19th century. Um, and and um, Ivor Goodson writes that uh, this is, uh, he says, I choose this example to show the relationship between school subject knowledge, which is accepted and therefore becomes traditional, and subject knowledge, which is disallowed. He says, this is the interface between school knowledge and powerful interest groups in society. School subjects are defined not in a disinterested scholastic way, but in close relationship to the power and interests of social groups. The more powerful the social group, the more likely they are to exercise power over school knowledge. So he's, this is very much in the vein of, of knowledge and control, isn't it? This idea of knowledge of the powerful. Um, and so Goodson goes on, he says, in his book, Science for the People, David Layton describes a movement in the initial development of the school science curriculum called the science of common things. This was an early attempt to broaden social inclusion through realizing the science curriculum to, or, sorry, to relating the science curriculum to ordinary people's experience of the natural world of their homes, daily lives and work. 
This curriculum was delivered in the elementary schools set up for predominantly working class young people. There is clear evidence provided by Leighton and in contemporary government reports that the science of common things worked successfully in classrooms and in extended science education. He says, we would however be wrong to assume that this was seen as a desirable development, far from it. Other definitions of school science were being advocated. There was a man called Lord Rottersley. This is absolutely fascinating to me. Lord Rottersley chaired a parliamentary committee of the British Association for the Advancement of Science on the most appropriate type of science education for the upper classes. Hodson argues that the report, quote, reflected a growing awareness of a serious problem, that science education at the elementary level was proving highly successful, particularly as far as the development of thinking skills was concerned, and the social hierarchy was under threat because there was not corresponding development for the higher orders, close quote. And in this report by Lord Rottersley, his fears, Goodson writes, were clearly stated with regards to the moves to further social inclusion. And here's a quote from Rottersley's report when he'd been interviewing young children from these working class schools. And the quote is incredible. It goes, a poor boy hobbled forth to give a reply. He was lame and humpbacked and his one emaciated face told only too clearly the tale of poverty and its consequences. But he gave forthwith so lucid and intelligent a reply to the question put to him that there arose a feeling of admiration for the child's talents, combined with a sense of shame that more information should be found in some of the lowest of our lowest classes on matters of general interest than in those far above them in the world by station. And Rottersley goes on to say, it would be an unwholesome and vicious state of society in which those who are comparatively unblessed with nature's gifts, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Nature's gifts should be generally superior in intellectual attainments to those high above them in station. And then there's just a final addendum to this. So, so, so Goodson writes, soon after Rottersley's comments were written in 1860, the science element was taken out of the elementary curriculum when science eventually reappeared in the curriculum of elementary schools some 20 years later. It was in a very different form from the science of common things. A watered down version of pure laboratory science had become accepted as the co correct and traditional view of science, a view which has largely persisted until the present day. Um, and then he, he finally, he ends by saying, school subjects, it seems, have to develop a form acceptable to the higher orders of society. Being a mechanism for social inclusion naturally does not recommend itself to the higher orders whose very position depends on social exclusion. School subjects thereafter become in themselves accepted, given, traditional and inevitable, but also in their academic form, exclusionary devices. So this seems to me to be a, a very 
powerful and strong example of the kinds of things that you were writing about in Knowledge and Control, the way in which knowledge was controlled by powerful interest groups in the setting up of the school I, curriculum. Yeah. Go on. You, you have to recognise that, in fact, what I said earlier, that, in fact, Knowledge and Control was published at a time when I was at the very beginning of my uh, educational sociological yeah. career in, in university. And I think that in many ways, I, I'm not detracting from the science of common things, but I'm not detracting from one of the few books, David Layton's book, Science of the People, that actually opened up the question of the science curriculum at all. But I think it was... Uh, we need to rethink that, how we interpret that. And I think the, re the way we have to interpret it is, I mean, for instance, um, if, you, if you take something like uh, waves, or if you take something like uh, the fact that the earth goes round the sun, some very, very basic things about the, the world we live in, you're never by, you're, the science of common things is never going to take you to those questions. It takes, you know, remarkable scientists like Newton and people at different stages of the scientific development uh, and Copernicus and people like that. It takes them to, in a sense, realise that the everyday perspective is actually wrong. That in fact the Earth is not flat, uh, and all kinds of things that we know. That, and um, you either don't understand it or you get it wrong. And in fact, one has to realise that there, that there are, if you like, there are two kinds of knowledge. There is the knowledge that is produced by science, by, by scientists, uh, specialised knowledge, and there is also knowledge that in fact kids are born with. So I think uh, that I, I'm very taken by the idea that in fact everyone is born with a desire for knowledge. The mm. sad thing is some, they, many of them actually lose that desire, but they're born, but the, the knowledge that they're born with like, is not in fact knowledge that we un, that is powerful in the sense of giving them an understanding of the world we're in any more than the knowledge of the common things is not actually knowledge that's going to help them understand the world they're in. The world they're in is much more complex than that. What that, what that does, though, and the example of the, of the insights, intelligence of the boy that the, in, the, in the quote you gave, what that does, that provides a resource for the pupil and for the teacher to work with in finding ways of giving them access to the knowledge that may be powerful over their lives. So it's not to deny that, but it places, and it actually, what it points to, I think most clearly, is the, 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 the faulty relationship between curriculum and pedagogy that has dominated our thinking, that curriculum becomes the knowledge, external, pedagogy becomes the practice, and, so, uh, and the psychologist, um, and it's very good at developing one but forget entirely the other. The curriculum theorists very often are good at developing structures of knowledge but neglect the fact that the educational question is how do you actually get access to that knowledge? How does it become part of you? 
And that is the question, in a sense. And in a sense, it's a question that Gove never addresses in, or didn't address when he was talking about the best that Ben Thornton said, and that, in fact, it's crucial to do so. So, so it's, it's a more complex, trickier question than, in fact, at all. And it is, it's more complex than I thought when I read The, the Science of Common Things. Yes. And it's more complex than even Ivor, bless him, who's a good friend, I don't see him, see him much recently, writes in that book. It's, it's, too, it's too simple, that. Yeah, well, this is, this is what I, the, the, how the penny dropped for me last week, that although this, this incredible sort of piece of, of social history, and what's remarkable is like the language that Lord Rottersley uses, like people didn't mince their words in the, in the 19th century. They just were quite happy to just say, you know, we don't want working class people to become too yeah. smart. And yet you can also see the limitations of the science of common things, it's like you say, it's not to deny that that's valuable, but there also has to be a, a, like a traditional subject discipline which takes you beyond your common everyday experience. If you, if a, if a child really gets to be become interested in light, for example, there's only so much that you can learn about the nature of light and its properties without using instruments and without learning like theoretical physics and so on. Can I just? summarize or rather just to make a concrete point in the 60s and the 70s um the uh arising from a quite famous education report uh called um half our future what that report said was we're neglecting the the half of the pupils who never get a GCSE, a no-level CSE or anything. We need to actually find ways of engaging with them. Now, they were right to recognize it, but the diagnosis was wrong. What we actually got is a whole string of well-intentioned curriculum proposals. What they were were, in fact, science for the young school leaver, mathematics from the majority. Those were the titles. They were basically curricula they were curricula for those who were never going to learn knowledge have access to knowledge and they were well intentioned and they tried very hard but they they never allowed the students who'd go on those courses to move on to the knowledge that they needed if they were going to reflect on their experience and develop uh, and, and i think they had a big influence on some of us. We thought that, in a sense, we need to get beyond that. Yes, yes. I suppose that that's what, what Gove, I think he took the phrase from somewhere else, but what was that phrase about the sort of the poverty of, uh, of low expectations or something? Yeah, but, the, but what Gove, and I don't want to get into a, there's a whole other political question, but maybe it's just worth mentioning here, and that is that, in fact, what, the goves of this world never realized, in my view, is that in fact, the kind of curriculum that they wanted for all students is a high resource curriculum. And in fact, where resources, qualified teachers, uh, buildings, lab, all kinds of things in schools are very unevenly distributed. So basically, they were avoiding the political issue that we distribute education resources unequally and, and in a sense, focused only on the outcomes, which, in fact, we might agree with. And that was where the, 
the degree of common ground between, if you like, the Goves and those like myself uh, are worth worth mentioning. Yes, yes. And you can see that, that, is, that the phrase was the soft bigotry of low expectations. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you can see that that is a common element with a common ground between yes, yourself and God, which was this idea of, of powerful knowledge for all and not just for some. But uh, on, the, on, the, on the flip side of that, there's, there's been lots of critique of another of, of Gove's um, reforms, which was the EBAC. Um, which um, as I'm sure you're aware, but just for, for the benefit of listeners, is where young people are very strongly encouraged to take particular subjects, which is English, maths, science, a humanities subject, and a language. Um, and therefore, they're discouraged from pursuing art, music, drama, technology, you know, the, the, the subjects in the school curriculum that, that aren't part of that of that EBAC. And again, I think that it was sort of, it was like a well-intentioned thing because it was coming from this position of powerful knowledge for all. But the fact that it led to lots of schools shutting down their technology departments, a massive drop in the numbers of young people taking those, these other subjects. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the EBAC and the way that that played out in recent years. No, I mean, I, I had some sympathy with the EBAC uh, as a broad policy, but I didn't have any sympathy with the idea that it, that it came to form, which is a kind of minimalist view of the curriculum. And that, in a sense, it meant that, that schools felt, because of how they were assessed and ranked and treated, schools were treated, they, fo- they narrowed their focus to the, if you like, the EBAC subjects. And that meant that other equally important resources were uh, subjects were actually excluded and that seemed and that is partly a res- again the resources you that in fact you'd recruit your qualified and your higher paid teachers in those subjects whereas in fact you wouldn't worry so much about whether you've got a music teacher or an art teacher and there's nothing not powerful and i think the other thing that's important is the extent to which I find now it's better to talk about the powers of knowledge rather than powerful knowledge, because the power of physics is very different from the power of music. It's not that they don't have both have power, we use the same terms, but the, but the, implica- the pedagogic and educational implications are very, very different. Okay, so I think that we've we've now got a good sense of the flavour of, of your work and some of the, the, the key ideas that have shaped your thinking. But um, I'd like to now take you back to the beginning, and we'll sort of we'll we'll go through this journey. So, can I start by asking you about your own uh, childhood and your own experience of of school? How how was how was school for you? Well, I had a very uh, seamless, unquestioning. Uh, typical private school education that um, up until the age of 16, I, my, the curriculum was mostly classics with, and mathematics. For some reason, and I've never been able to explain it, uh, in the final year of that period, I did something called general science, 
And for the first time, there were some kind of things that, that took off for me and I got excited about, particularly chemistry, but in fact, all the sciences. So that for the, for the two years after that, I did physics, chemistry, mathematics, and nothing else. And I think that's an excruciatingly narrow uh, curriculum. I feel very ashamed to this day that I have um, I have very limited knowledge of history. I can, I'm no good at other languages than English. I, I, I've not read widely or systematically literature, and I've, I've certainly not had an opportunity to uh, in, in art or music at all. I got tested very early on. And they told me, you're not going to ever do any good in art and similarly in music, and so I decided those were not for me. So I had a very narrow... But for me, perfectly satisfactory. I never debated it or questioned it, and um, in a sense, and that ha that occurred for me right on into Cambridge, where I did natural science tripos. But I had lost my by then, because I'd had two years in national service in between. I had lost my enthusiasm for an interest, really, at the time, in chemistry uh, and and the physical sciences and hadn't found an interest in anything else at the time. Uh, uh, and so, in a sense, I drifted through my university career um, and got my bad degree and managed to get a job in corporate world, Shell uh, Chemical Company. Uh, and that's really all I have to say. It, it was not, in the broader sense, an education for me my schooling, but I was happy and I was engaged and I was involved in it. Thank you. That's interesting. And that's another way in which the systems of the of the school, because you were saying, you know, to my shame, it was a very narrow curriculum. And and I feel I, I feel like my my you know interests were very were narrowed very early on. And I did a similar diet. My A levels were were biology, chemistry and maths. Um, but it's not, I don't think that the shame is necessarily on you as a person because the the, the structure of this of the education system narrows down your range of options. And so you study, you know, 10 subjects at GCSE, three subjects at A level, and one subject by the time you're 18. If you go on to university, then you're down to one. And it's just always struck me that that's a really silly way <laughs> of going about things that just as just as people are, go, are emerging through through adolescence into adulthood and their interest in in the world is is diversifying and they're becoming interested in politics and music and art and their social life and there's so much going on that the education system is operating as a funnel that's 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 closing down those options um i don't know with, with, do you have any thoughts on that well i have i have some Thoughts on it, yeah. First of all, of course, that in fact, as I got to know people in other European countries, I realised that there could be, or even if I went up to Edinburgh, I realised that there could be very different curricula that in fact did not say, just because you're wanting to specialise in the sciences, it means that you give up the rest of the curriculum. Uh, and in a sense, and the whole baccalaureate model is based in France is based upon that assumption, as to some extent is the abateur and the maturata. All those Europeans have that much broader notion 
of education that we we ever had. Um, so I, um, that that was quite an important education in a sense, in a sense for me. Um, but it also relates to the a complex question, which I'm trying a little bit to think about these days. That in fact, as a, as a world, we produce more knowledge all the time, but this time and space we've got in schooling is not getting ever bigger. And the question about how we actually, to use a jargon term, recontextualize the knowledge that's being produced and was produced in the past into subjects of the curriculum is something that we've never really asked hard questions about. And I mm -hmm. think it's remiss of the educational research community that they don't address those questions. So, so you went through the whole of your of your education to, all the way through to to Cambridge. Did you say um, you, you described it as seamless, but you felt like you hadn't really found your calling? You've sort of fallen no. out of love with chemistry. Not at, all. Not at all. And then, so and then you were working for Shell. So, how did you then find? So, you eventually found your love in sociology. Uh, but was that via teaching? You taught for a few years, didn't you? I taught. Yes, I. Before I started teaching, I read a very a book that was very important for me was about whether nuclear weapons could be a rational defense policy. And I came to the conclusion that it couldn't, because in a sense, if you use them, you will be destroyed as well as those you're using them against. Yeah. So I got involved in CND both organizationally and in marches. And it quite, it was the first time I really started to have to think hard about a lot of things. And in a sense, I couldn't just think only about um, nuclear de defense policies. I had to broaden it, think broad, more broadly about political questions. And that led me to think that I know nothing about the society that I've grown up in and hence was the motivation for me to study sociology. So in a sense, I decided to give up Shell, to get a job teaching, because it would give me holidays, I thought, uh, and when I could study sociology in the evenings, which is what I did. Of course, what happened was that I got much more involved in teaching than I ever thought I would, uh, and it became a very important part of my life and has been so ever since. Um, but um, And I did manage to get the sociology degree in the evening. So it was the first time I became really, I became motivated, strongly motivated. My desire for knowledge was sort of generated for the first time in studying sociology and also in studying to try and improve my role, my, my job as a science teacher. Yes, it was very important to me as well. So that was when I, in a sense, almost started my education. Yeah, that how fascinating is that? And and actually, my own journey was very similar, where I sort of stumbled through my education, never really found anything that particularly interested me. Finally, realized age thirty that teaching was going to be the thing for me. And yeah. similarly for you, that was where it really took off for me. Um, and so, so you 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 became. What was it that attracted you to sociology in particular, rather than other types of education research? Uh, I didn't. I didn't. When I when I decided when I needed to understand the world I was in and my own self, really in it, um, and uh, I, I had no thought about being a teacher. 
And um, it was, I only ended up thinking about teaching because I had a science degree. I didn't need to get more qualifications at that time and I could get a job. I didn't, uh, so I didn't think about that part of it at all. When I started, I was a supply teacher, teaching French and history and, and, and anything, which was pretty grim, uh, to, put, to put it mildly, and I don't think anybody learned much either. So in a sense, and I don't quite, I actually, I, somehow or other, I realized that I needed to, to learn a bit about the society that I was in, um, and that was what led me to sociology, uh, and um, and I think and I'm I have no regrets about that. But I think I was I was right. But what I thought it would teach, what, because in a sense it was shaped by my politics, because we were in the twelfth or third uh, year, one of those endless years of conservative government, and um, and I couldn't see any change. At the time, uh, in in uh, unless we actually changed that government, and so what I was, what my personal concerns at the time was, can I understand how we can change the society and basically how it could become more equal for all people? And so I, that's the question I asked. Now, when I started so, so studying sociology, I learned what I didn't expect to learn that it didn't help me to understand how to change society. It helped me to understand how difficult it was ever to change society at all. And that was quite an educational lesson in itself. And um, quite a difficult lesson, I imagine. It was. And I mean, it's uh, modified over the year, my, you know, and that's why I started asking those questions about the curriculum, about knowledge. Um, when I when I got to um, do my master's degree, yes. So so um, I wonder if it might be a good point at which to bring in Basil Bernstein because oh, yeah. I know I know that he was very influential in your early career, and the, there's a lovely tribute that you write to him at the end of um, of of bringing knowledge back That's in. Right, yeah. Could you just uh, introduce for listeners, you know, like how how did you first come across Basil, and and how how was he influential in your in your dev um, development of your thinking early on? He was, I, I mean, I, I often think our lives are governed by luck, but, um, and mine, I can certainly think of the luck. And then, you know, the luck, and then do you make use of the luck? That's really what it reminds you. You've got to two things. Yes. Um, when I was uh, studying part-time in the evenings at Regent Street Polytechnic, um, I first, my tutor said, why, why don't you study, why don't you do a master's degree? So that was a bit beyond me. I didn't think that was possible at all. And the obvious place then, because there wasn't much sociology around, was to go to LSE. And uh, But at LSE that year, the person who taught the module, the course on sociology of education, was on sabbatical. So there was not much use. As I By then, I wanted to study sociology of education. Uh, and so, in fact, my tutor then said, well, why not try Essex? University. This is new, it's only been two or three years existing. So it's quite exciting to think of going there. So I did, and I got I got a place and I got a grant. Um now there again luck came in because the person who was teaching the Social of Education had got a year off. And so they recruited Bernstein to be a visiting professor there, and he took the course. 
And right. he and I, because I quite often used to come back to London from Colchester, he and I used to go back on the train, and we I developed a friendly rather than just a student-professor relationship with him. He invited me to his home, and you know, we and at some point he said, um, I've got a job for you. And in those days, it was easy for somebody in his position to recruit somebody that, in fact, he decided he wanted. And so I went up for the interview. Before I knew I was, I was lecturer in sociology of education at the University of London. So that was the history to it. Um, and um, But as always happens, life becomes more complicated because, in fact, uh, Bernstein was, um, a, to put it mildly, a tricky person. And uh, many people have found him very difficult, and I found him very difficult as well. But I do think he is probably the most outstanding thinker about education, particularly the curriculum, education in general, that we've had in this country, certainly certainly since, since the Second World War. Um, and, so, and how would you how would you summarize that? If you, like, if you, like what, are the, what are the key ideas of Bernstein's that you think have been particularly influential? Well, I think I think the first key idea for me was that if you are concerned with the question of equality, then you don't focus on the act the characteristics of those who fail, uh, which is what in fact most educational research had done. They'd looked at inequalities in terms of the distribution of working class kids' opportunities. You don't, you focus on the structure of the education that they fail at. And I think it was that shift that was really important. And that's the shift that I expressed in uh, Knowledge and Control. But I have to say that I was very inexperienced at the time. And I was amazed that Bernstein said to me, because really I would have assumed it would have been him who'd put together that book. But he said, well, you should do it. And I couldn't say no. Right. And so um, that, that's what I did. But in a sense, I didn't have the background for doing it really, you know. Right. And so can can we can you take, can we go to this meeting? Like, is it true that that book came out of a meeting that, that the three of you had with yourself and Basil Bernstein and Pierre Bourdieu? And Pierre Bourdieu, yes, yes. Yes. Could you could well, you like what, what happened at that meeting and what was what was the sort of the Well we interest? met at the Russell Square Hotel in the bar, which is uh, this kind of place we always met with Bernstein because he always liked to drink. <laughs> and basically we were we'd been at this at this conference in Durham, and I'd given a paper, and Bourdieu had given a paper. Nobody knew about Bourdieu in England at the time, uh, but he, we managed to get him to come to the conference. He gave an interesting paper, and Bernstein gave the keynote at the end of that conference, which, in fact, inspired and mystified everyone because they'd never thought, heard anything like that before at all. I don't know if you've read any Bernstein. It's a famous paper called The Classification and Framing of Educational Knowledge. Which is okay, now I'll, I'll look that up. The first paper that he wrote, which put these questions about curriculum on the deck. And so we were in the bar of the Russell Hotel, and we were saying, well, the pity is that that conference uh, didn't do, it, it, it had a fragmented and eclectic approach to what the papers were. It wasn't itself something that was going to take anything forward. And there was a kind of agreement uh, that in fact there needed to be uh, 
a book which really focused on what happens if you shift from focusing on the attributes of kids to, to the nature of the education system. And, and that's where sociology of education should go. And, um, and that was broadly agreed. And I don't know, I don't remember the next bit, but, I, but somehow or other, back in the office of the university, um, Bernstein must have said to me, you should get this book together. And I'll put you in touch, he said. He had a friend who was in the publishing. He said, I'll put you in touch with the publisher. So uh, that I was given the job. But one of the complicating aspects is that when I actually brought it together, he didn't like the structure of the book that I had put together. Right. And it was not consistent with his view that he had not expressed to me at the time uh, <laughs> of where the sociology of education should go. And um, I focused, so I focused on it, this kind of critical questioning of everything that was received and taken for granted and given. And that's what excited some people and angered some other people. And Bernstein, in fact, thought that it was not the way ahead at all. So, so he didn't like the book. Although he had an article, he had his paper in it. Yeah, there's a chapter in it. And um, we had a lot of difficulties, he and I, ever afterwards. We moved in very different directions in terms of our work. And it was only really much later on, after he died, that in fact I read one of his later papers and I found myself needing to rethink my relationship with Bernstein's work and realise how important it was. Right, right. Okay, thank you. And so so can I just, like, let's go back to, to knowledge and control. I don't know if this question is going to go anywhere. You might not even remember this, but at the start of Knowledge and Control, there's a poem, and I was really intrigued by it. You know, it, I'll just read it out for the benefit of listeners. It's because I was, I just, I was, I'm curious as to the meaning of it and how it relates. So it says, one day, young Captain Jonathan, he was 18 at the time, captured a pelican on an island in the Far East. In the morning, this pelican of Jonathan's laid a white egg, and out of it came a pelican, astonishingly like the first. And this second pelican laid in its turn a white egg, from which came inevitably another who did the same again. This sort of thing can go on a very long time if you don't make an omelette. <laughs> um, and that's uh, by... This, this poem was given to me or shown to me by a research uh, assistant uh, at the Institute called Elizabeth McGovern. And in a sense, it captured for me what I thought that the sociology of education could do, that in fact we needed, it was like the fixed egg, and we needed to open the egg up and crack the egg and then build something from it. <clears throat> and so it was a kind of metaphor for what I was arguing in the book. I know now that was highly naive, and I, but nevertheless, it was a sort of provocative way of putting something at the front of the book. <laughs> I see. Okay, thank you for and, explaining and that. Bernstein didn't like that at all. And right. he was right, as I learned later, that in fact, uh, you don't crack the egg, you build on what's wrong with the egg. 
Yeah. The metaphor was irresistible. And also, <laughs> quite important, that was a radical time when people were asking those kind of questions. You know, maybe science can be done by people, not by specialists. Maybe the literature is the literature of the street, you know, things like that. Yes, yeah. And so just to pull out like an example of a quote of this is like for, for the benefit of listeners, like there's a, there's a, an excerpt, I think it's from from the, the your, your first chapter rather than the introduction. It says, um, academic curricula in this country involve assumptions that some kinds and areas of knowledge are much more worthwhile than others, that as soon as possible, all knowledge should become specialized and with minimum explicit emphasis on the relations between the subjects specialised in, that's an interesting question that we'll maybe come back to, the interdisciplinarity, if you like, uh, and between the specialist teachers involved. And then that quote ends by saying further, that as we assume some patterns of social relations associated with any curriculum, these changes will be resisted so far as the, insofar as they are perceived to undermine the values relative power and privileges of the dominant groups involved. It seemed to me that that was sort of like quite a, you know, a succinct summation of, of that, of that, the general sort of idea that was Perhaps that you were getting at. that years later, I would have described that as an example of, in fact, uh, the curriculum being knowledge of the powerful. Yes, exactly. The description of that focus on knowledge. And the problem that it has is uh, that I later came to see it, which is why I contrasted it with powerful knowledge later, is that, in fact, it, um, it's basically it's a political theory, not an educational theory. It says nothing about what you do when you've cracked the egg, that in right. fact, when you've cracked the egg, you've lost everything you knew before that might be educational, and you've got no guidance for the next bit. And that was where I started to, re instead of thinking that Marx was my kind of hero, I realized that I needed to think seriously about Durkheim, who had a very different view. Uh, and one that was much more endorsed by Bernstein, as it happens. So in a sense, so, uh, I wouldn't want to say that that, I, I just, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to, if you're, your rationale for criticizing the given is to enable uh, society and teachers in particular to, to develop a new model of what education is and what schools could do, then in a sense, that isn't much help. It actually is not all that different from the Ivan Illich argument that, that schools are actually anti-educational, because they have all the attributes. And so that, that, that was, so I, I didn't ever line up with de-schooling or anything, but nevertheless, there was a kind of common ground between uh, a certain common ground, and that was, that was what, because, and I think the reason is that I focused on the power, the power in society, and I saw the curriculum then as a kind of instrument of the power in society. And I thought that, in fact, what we could do is to show how you could change the curriculum and then the society. 
Yes, yes. I mean, and the, like a similar sort of conversation happens now with regard to, for example, like which books young people should should read. Yes. So should we, for example, let them read, you know, books like Diary of a Wimpy Kid? I don't know if you're familiar, but there's very few words on each page. There are lots of lots of cartoons, and kids like it because it's really easy, it's unchallenging, and it's rooted in things that they understand that they see as familiar with their everyday experience. It's young people, you know, getting up to getting into scrapes and what have you. And then there are other people who say, well, no, we should be teaching them Oliver Twist or, you know, Great Expectations or whatever it might be, something that's considered to be a more worthy, um, something like something from the canon, which is, you know, we can see see how that, that conversation plays out. And people still say, oscillate back and forth between the two. Some people say that it's most important for a young person to develop a love of learning. And if that means reading lots of very unchallenging texts, but it means that they get into the habit of reading books, then that's better than sort of forcing, you know, high, high level, highbrow literature down their necks like foie gras, when actually, you know, it's, it might have an adverse effect. And we know that, you know, there are millions of adults in this country who never pick up a book. Um, you know, so there's something about what happens in schools and that has happened for years that really turns people off reading. So you can see how, like, I don't think that it is just some academic debate or that there's only in the political realm, say. I do think that it has sort of very practical implications for how we educate children. It, and and I mean, there's still no easy answers to those questions. It goes back very much to the point I made earlier in this uh, conversation about the disjunction between school knowledge and everyday knowledge, and that, in fact, um, allowing kids, if you like, to read things that are easy with lots of pictures and, you know, cartoons and things, is like elaborating the everyday, whereas, in fact, what school does, and it's got to, it's got to find things that take them beyond the everyday. And, in a sense, there are literatures that do that, but it doesn't just mean you put Oliver Twist or Shakespeare on the curriculum and say, you know, you've got to do this. It is a really specialist task on the part of teachers to work out the relationship between the, the pupil's knowledge and Shakespeare's, what Shakespeare's saying in Henry V or Macbeth. Uh, and it's not a straightforward thing at all, but it is about the same thing that, in fact, I was then too... Uh, uncritical about the argument that we should break down schools and make them more like everyday life. And that in fact, actually, why have, if you're going to make schools like everyday life, why have them? And I think that's, you know, that, but it is, you're absolutely right. Pick the, the example is a very good one. I mean, and what, and similarly with the science for common things or any su subject and the fact that, you know, I've talked a lot to my colleagues who train history teachers, everybody has a sense of history of their past of some kind. But what people go to study history is to actually find about how you actually ask historical questions, which is not the same as having a sense of personal history. Yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think that to 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 push back gently, I think on that on that idea about why have schools if it's not to if it's not to put if it's not to um to to take young people out of what they know already. What's the point of schools in a sense? 
I think that where I would come at that question, and I don't think that it contradicts the idea of powerful knowledge, by the way, is that I think that the, 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 the best thing that we can do in schools, in education, is not necessarily to teach young people powerful knowledge, but to teach them in such a way that they themselves are able to feed themselves a diet of powerful knowledge throughout their yeah. lives, you know? So this is like about, about a dispositional thing. And this is where lots of my work overlaps with Guy Claxton's work, because it's like, it's dispositional. It's like, you know, like th those, those 3 million adults who never pick up a book in this country, what went wrong there? And what, could, what might we have done differently when those people were in school to make it so that they felt like a, like a proactive, confident, lover of learning who was able to access learning through through the rest of their lives and i'm much more interested in 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 helping young people develop those those skills and and something that i often struggle with is like even like it's such a fundamental thing that like even the very idea of teaching of having a teacher um that that actually you know, like, does that make somebody dependent on on somebody external to regulate the the flow of information into you, so that education and learning is something that's well, done to you by an external agent rather than something that is inner directed and inner motivated? This raises an important, a, a really important issue, which I have tried to uh, discuss in things I've written more recently, that there is an inescapable regulatory. Um, uh, authority relation in pedagogy that it's that in a sense you can't uh, you can't deny that uh, if you do you've lost a sense that's distinctive about pedagogy mm. and that's why in a sense teaching is such an important uh, profession and so neglected in terms of its status and recognition in society because it's actually except for a few people, it's difficult to do um, because, in fact, you are you're trying to... Because in the end, learning is something that, in fact, the pupil... Teachers can't, in, a sense, in the end, teach anything. They've got to create a context where those pupils want to reignite their desire for knowledge, and the teacher's there to provide them with certain structures and frameworks for them to do that. And that, that's not a straightforward or easy issue. And it's not easy for Ofsted, and it's not easy for examiners to do. And, and they're all faulty, in a sense. All these institutions, inspection, examining, curriculum, are all, in a sense, faulty attempts to address that issue. We have yes. to keep that issue open. But in fact, if you duck the issue as... The, uh, the learning scientists do, um, and if you duck, uh, if, if you duck either end of that issue, if you duck the, the complex thing that, in fact, learning at school, and the other thing that I think is, I learned actually from reading Vygotsky, funny enough, mm. and that is, there's a key difference between everyday learning, which is incidental, you learn for play, you learn by just growing up, yeah, and learning in school when you actually have to do the fucking thing. You, I'm sorry, <laughs> you have to do the learning, uh, uh, and teach teachers are always having to think, "How am I enabling learning?" But it's no good thinking that unless you know what kind of things they're going to learn. That's where the, I'm, I have some questions about the learning to learn argument. It 
doesn't really take on that issue. Well, let, let me so so again so so this is an example that I know that we that we discussed last week, but I'd be interested to 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 bring it up again. So to to give, to share an example from the learning to learn curriculum that I was involved in. We yeah. did a group research project where the students, I've, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, so apologies to anyone who's familiar with this story, but it's a really good example, I think, of how powerful knowledge does not have to be taught. So we did a, a group research project where we took the young, we, we took the students year seven, so age <coughs> 11, we took them to the library and we said, you need to do a group research project where you, in a, in a group of three, you all agree on, on what it is that you want to research, and you're going to research this for six weeks, and then you're going to present your findings to the class. And so this, there, was, there, there was this one particular group where there was a girl who had found a book about feminism, a really old book from the 1970s, like an introduction to feminism, very tatty old dog-eared book. Yeah. And she was like, I have to learn about feminism. I can't not do about this. It's like she just in, immediately felt a, a very strong sense that she wanted to, to, to learn more about it. And another boy in her group had, um, had found a book about South America, and he had never heard of this whole continent before. He'd never really even thought about it. And he was looking at all these photographs, and he was amazed. And then they ended up doing a comparison. So they, they couldn't, like, none of them wanted to drop their topic. And they ended up agreeing to do a history of feminism in Latin America. And then when the third student came back, who was absent that day, he was obsessed with China. And they, they decided to do a comparative study of the history of feminism and the current state of feminism in Latin America and China, which sounds like a, a PhD study. And I think it's a really powerful example. And I'm not saying that this was typical. This was, this was an unusual group, but there were some other amazing projects that were done in that project. But it's an example of how those young people could gain incredibly powerful knowledge about the world, I think, in a way that wasn't taught and also that wasn't restricted to a particular subject discipline. Because this started with a political idea of feminism and then they were geographical ideas about you know, China and Latin America and then history came in and then communism came in because they were common to both China and Latin America and the commonalities between communism and feminism because they're both in some sense about equality. They learned so much from this, from this very student centered you know exploratory project that that a wasn't taught and b wasn't bounded by subject disciplines it was it was like a, a cross-disciplinary thing and so I, I think that that's an example of of how i, I mean I, again it's not an anti-knowledge thing like these kids are gaining knowledge in an incredibly powerful yeah. way but it's just a, it's just saying that you don't necessarily need to predefine what it is that they need to know about it, it I just don't, I, I think two things. One is that in fact, um, you didn't end up with those kids in a McDonald's or in a playground or something like that. You ended, them, you ended up with them in a library. Now you've mm -hmm. already made assumptions about knowledge uh, in a sense and about powerful knowledge, better knowledge in doing that. That's definitely and, true. Yeah. In a sense, um, but I think that the example is is fine. But in a sense, once you come to uh, think about a pupil's career in school, then uh, you actually have to have some kind of notion of sequencing. You can't really avoid it. 
where people do some things at some time, some things at one year and some things the other, in a sense. You have to have those, you have to have a certain kind of coherence, which is both limiting and possible. Because one of the things that Bernstein is particularly good about is his discussion of boundaries. And in a sense, what you described was, was fine, a boundary-free curriculum, uh, in fact. Now, the problem with the... I, th I think we have to accept that boundaries are both a constraint and a possibility. That, and because if you come across the boundary, you may that may get you to think why you want to go beyond it. Uh, and I think that, in a sense, and subjects actually do that, they teach you that, in fact, there's no knowledge that's not in that subject, and that, in fact, you need to go and look for alternatives and so forth. So you build, I mean, pupils in a subject-based curriculum themselves build an inter-subject inter knowledge as they grow up. Yeah. But you've got to actually have the boundaries for people to engage with and go beyond. Yeah, that's I all. I agree, and I'm I don't not. I disagree with that at all. But I don't. Well, I don't want to get involved in that for the, the purpose of this. I just think that, in fact, we we shouldn't have. Uh, we shouldn't sort of celebrate interdisciplinarity without realizing that, in fact, the disciplines themselves have a role. That, in fact, there's bad discipline, interdisciplinarity, and good. I completely agree. And I'm not arguing that we should get rid of subject disciplines. I no. think that we absolutely need them. But I think that they're like, I think that to have a, 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 a school curriculum that's purely based on subject based curriculums. But who's arguing no, for that? Well, that's what we've got. Like, like at the moment, there's that like you were we're saying. We're not defending the existing. You're asking me about my ideas. I'm not one, uh, uh, to, you know, I mean, of course, that's what we've got, but I'm not defending that. So, so yeah, so so this is a point that we agree on then. So do you think that, so, so for example, somebody I was speaking to recently, Derry Hannum, was saying that he thinks that 20% would be a good amount of time. So you have 20% of time in the school week, like one-fifth, say, where the young people are free to pursue their interests, and then the rest of the time they are in subject disciplines in the way that they are. I, I, I'm not quibbling about that at all. I mean, I, I just think we need to hold on to the, I mean, this is the danger of we're going down a route that ends up by being critical of me because I overemphasize, not you, but of overemphasized boundaries. And I'm critical of what's being said because in fact, there are none. And that's, it's never an either or. It's really important to hold on to that. Boundaries have a purpose. They are a constraint and a possibility. And I think that is the most crucial thing to remember. I think, I think we agree. I, I, yeah. I, I really do think that we agree that we see that there's value both in subject disciplines and in interdisciplinary thinking, um, and that there should be room for both. Um, and there, there were other ideas that you that you developed in the in in knowledge and control that I think remain really valid today. So, and if I could just share with you one more excerpt, and then we'll we'll move on in, in a while. There's a quote where you were talking about Weber, um, and uh, um, his publication in 1952. You said Weber discusses the process of what he calls the bureaucratic domination of the nature of education. You say he implicitly suggests that the major constraint on what counts as knowledge in society will be whether it can be objectively assessed. 
You say there is a, an interesting and not entirely fortuitous parallel with Kelvin's sentiment that, and this is a quote, when you cannot express it in numbers, your knowledge is of a meager and unsatisfactory kind, close quote, uh, in the idea implicit in contemporary education that if you cannot examine it, it is not worth knowing. The way that formal examinations place in increasing emphasis on literacy rather than oral expression, for example, um, you, you talk about, and the implications of the literate character of modern culture uh, brought out by other, by other authors who argue that so great is the discontinuity or even the contradictions between the private oral traditions of family and home and the public literate tradition of the school, that literate skills form one of the major axes of differentiation. And just to, just to close this up, it says they go on to suggest that reading and writing, which are the activities that occupy most of the timetable of those being educated, are inevitably solitary activities. And so a literate culture brings with it an increasing individualization. This individualization is symbolized in its most dramatic form in the various ways in which those being educated are assessed and examined. Close quote. Um, I mean, that seems to me... At, at that time, I was over-polarising the issues in a way that was not helpful. And it made seem to be, it, it came out as if it was anti-certain things rather than a question. And I don't think that's just going back because one gets more conservative when one gets older. I think you learn you learn lessons. And I just I, I just think that when I, when I hear that, I mean, I've forgotten the time lessons. I mean, obviously, in its context, it's it's a good I mean the, but the, the reason that I pulled it out is that I that that seems to it struck a chord with me both the the way in which knowledge is assessed like leads to leads to like us teaching and valuing certain types of knowledge at the expense of others knowledge that's easy to assess um in a so for example like you were talking about the oral tradition knowledge of how to how to construct a you know uh, like oracy is not only a skillful thing; it's also there, there's a yeah. knowledge base that underpins oracy. But it, but the way in which like the, we focus, especially on written literacy and numeracy, because it creates a paper trail and it's easier to assess. And then the second point that you made there about the way in which that emphasis on reading and writing is turns education into a very competitive endeavor, where they, where kids are competing for grades in an exam, which is a, which individualizes, and it's about like performing better than people rather than working better well, with I, other people I, for example i, I think I that think the, the, the reason that i pulled it out is that i think it's still a valid point what i'm trying to say that. is that in fact and I, I take you back to the fact that the issues are more complex uh in a sense we uh, there are limitations to emphasizing oracy uh you've got to have some system for comparing people that is not just personal judgments and for all their limitations uh external assessment peer review all those kind of regulatory things which deny the distinctiveness of the individual and uh, have some purpose you they can take over and deny other things but they have some purpose there was a danger at that time of being anti-anything that looked remotely regulatory. And I think we actually have to hold on to the elements of regulation that are in some sense emancipatory. Yes. And that's why, and I, so I don't, uh, you know, I mean, um, 
They're not stupid things to have written at the time, but but they were not aware enough of the complications and the contradictions that, for instance, every teacher faces. I mean, I think that the, the, the balance is often goes swings in an inappropriate way without care for enough. I mean, there was a swing towards continuous assessment, but there are problems about continuous assessment, just as there are problems about terminal assessment. And But there's not the, the careful research that looks at the relationship between them. That's all. Yes, I think that that's an excellent point. I don't it's, think it's, it's, I would disagree about that, you know. But you're right to you're right to put them to me. But I mean, I'm not going to agree with Young, 1971, uh, or disagree. <laughs> I think it's more complex. I love that. That reminds me of a, a, something that a student once said in a lesson of mine, where he realised that he was contradicting something that he had said earlier, and then he paused and said, "I both agree and disagree with myself." I love that. <laughs> let's em- let's embrace the complexity. Okay, so let's move on to to powerful knowledge. I know that we've talked about it a bit already. At at some point, I can't remember in which publication it was, you described it in terms of, you know, like the apocryphal story about the sages in a dark room who are all feeling a different part of an elephant. And one of them is touching the tail and says, this is a rope. Someone else touches the leg and says, this is a tree. And it's only when you put it all together that you realise that it's an elephant, right? And so... I was just wondering, so you're, so you, you, you're describing powerful knowledge as something that is multifaceted and therefore that's probably quite difficult to define succinctly. Um, and yet, my next question is, can you define powerful knowledge succinctly? Can I define powerful knowledge? Succinctly. What would be your, your yeah, snap, uh, snapshot? Well, I, can, I, can, I can try. Powerful knowledge is specific to feel to to the questions that knowledge is trying to address powerful knowledge is not the same if you're trying to in fact interpret data from the large hadron collider as it is if you are in a sense reading a poem this powerful knowledge takes very it, it is related to what the powers are about, the, the thing that I would hold on to about powerful knowledge, the, the concept, two things. One is that it's like, like, really like science, that it's never certain. It's never the knowledge. Just as uh, it's like a debate about truth. We, we never know what the truth, we, we, we're always struggling to find the truth. And at whatever stage we are in our learning, our inquiries about anything, we are struggling to get the best understanding of it that we can. So that's the only thing. The other thing is that, in fact, um, for it to be powerful, it's also it's always got to, in some way, take you beyond where you are, beyond what you experience, beyond what you take for granted, and um, and that will happen in different in you know different ways depending on the problem you're concerned with but what what's important about 
powerful not knowledge is that it's not tied to people's experience. It's tied, if anything, to people who've spent their life focusing on particular areas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it, to, to, I, I think that, um, on, and, and this again is a tricky issue. On the one hand, powerful knowledge is always specialized knowledge. Specialization itself has got problems because specialization narrows you in what you're focused and leads you to forget other things. So that in a sense, it fragments knowledge. At yes. the same time, if you just say, I want a much more specialized curriculum, you, you forget the fact you don't just want a more specialized curriculum. You want a, a curriculum that's got more connections in it. Yes. My own feeling is that, um, uh, that powerful knowledge, in some ways, was, was an unfortunate term that came up. I don't know who it was uh, who actually coined it first. Obviously, it wasn't a new term, power and knowledge, or as old as history. Yeah, knowledge um, is power, is but, long uh, history. I, I, I mean, it's, it's not what I would call, it's not a discipline-based concept, really. It's a kind of slogan. When I first wrote a paper that contrasted knowledge of the powerful and powerful knowledge, what I was doing was not setting a principle for the curriculum. I was setting a questions for the research in a field to ask. So it was more of a slogan, and I don't think it should be used to... And the, I think the other thing about powerful knowledge is that if, if, it's, if it's knowledge that, it, that extends your thinking, that extends uh, it in some kind of way, extends what you have experienced, then it must you must find ways in the curriculum of offering it to all kids, even those who appear initially to want to reject it. Right. I can see why you used the elephant metaphor. Like it is a it is a very multifaceted thing. There's so many there's so many aspects to this. Yeah. One aspect of this is that this is knowledge that takes you out of your experience, and another another aspect of it is. That it is knowledge that I mean, in 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 the world of physics, the word power means something that can do work, doesn't it? Something that yes. can get work done, and so you can imagine. So, like for example, to go back to the science of common things that we were learning about earlier, about studying the natural world and you know, like melting and freezing water and so on. Like that's going to take you a certain step along the way to maybe understanding states of matter and so on. But you're not going to be able to make a mobile phone. Or, yeah. or a Wi-Fi router, right? Like, if you wanted to, to, so you can see how like the the the, the, the 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 scientific and mathematical knowledge that gets things done is very specialized and therefore it is powerful because it can make things happen. Is that is that one, a fair reflection yes. of what you mean? Well, one thing I wanted to add, and this is something also that I learned. The only psychologist who I've really got excited by is Vygotsky, um, and I learned from. Well, he at some point says he's got this more because he was a Marxist as well, more dialectical view of of thinking about things. And he said not only 
does theoretical knowledge take you beyond your experience, but it gives you a new understanding of that experience. It kind of goes beyond and then back. It's got those, it's a two-way thing, so that suddenly you see your experience in quite new ways. Because obviously, you know, if you, if you think about, you know, Copernicus or anything like that, it's 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 a it's a true it's a powerful statement about the world. But also, once you've seen it, once you've grasped it, it's a statement about you in the world. Yeah, about how you'd thought before. So that's a really important part. I would want to emphasize. That's fascinating. So it goes two ways. Yeah, yeah, and it cha- absolutely that bit. The Copernican revolution was was huge, wasn't it? Because it m- took the Earth away from being at the center of the universe, yeah, and therefore took hu- made human beings incidental rather than you know like the center of God's plan or whatever. Um, and so, like learning, that's a really good example of how powerful knowledge takes you out of your experience because you're seeing things from an outer space perspective, but that changes your perception of yourself as what it means to be human. But if you only have experience, if you don't have a context that's independent of that experience, which is what school is, you're never going to get that that extension of your experience. Yes, yes. So I think that, like, through this conversation, I think I'm getting the sense that there's definitely a lot more common ground between between yourself and Guy Claxton, even than than we might have previously thought. Um, because I think that like what some people have have taken, so I think that some people have taken your your uh, this idea of of powerful knowledge and have taken it to be a defense of the traditional school curriculum in its current form, and that that's it that it's that it's a fundamentally conservative view, and that therefore we don't need to innovate or change things. But through this conversation and through our conversation last week, that's not that's not what you're saying at all, not at all, not at all. You know, I mean. I do put a big emphasis on the link between powerful knowledge and boundaries. That that that's one thing. And the the uh, the other thing, and I've forgotten what the second one was, which is important, which will come to me, I hope, in a moment. Um, but uh, I think Bernstein uses this that in fact knowledge, not in quite the way I'm going to. Knowledge is always like a coin; it's got two faces. And that, in fact, it's really important if you if you forget that it's got two faces, and that's what slogans and dogmas do. They have a one-faced view of knowledge, and I want we have to have, and it's more difficult. You have to make judgments and things like that. It's harder if you've just got a belief. Beliefs, or not all beliefs, but there's a tendency for 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 religious beliefs to be to have the same problem as. As, as dogma and so forth. And I think it's really important to hold on to that two-faced, two-facedness. The coin is a very good metaphor. Um, and um, it, it, uh, it was, Bernstein got it from the great French sociologist Durkheim and his distinction, which is between the sacred, which is taken from religion, but for Durkheim was not religion just, uh, because Durkheim was not a believer in relig- in God himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, sacred and profane, 
Profane was the everyday, and sacred was what got beyond the everyday. And the and the one of the things that I found most kind of transformative for me was reading Durkheim again afresh, twenty years after I first read it, and realizing that, for instance, science and religion are not in opposition; that science grew out of religion. Because unless you had the sacred that was independent of your profane, of the set of the everyday life, you would never be able to have science, any kind of science or literature or any kind of knowledge. And so that that's, I think, the other really important thing, um, as well as this, that I would want to emphasize that, in fact, uh, and I would like to see uh, people like Guy acknowledge that, um, but then he'd probably want me to acknowledge other things, but in that <laughs> sense. Right. Okay. And so, so I mean, are you familiar with this idea of the, the philosopher Roger Scruton, who who says that, or who wrote once that that like people often talk about education as though it's like it's an emancipatory mechanism for young people to learn knowledge and skills and to get off to a great start in life. And and he said. It's not really about that. He said he he sees education as being a, a process of preserving this cherished, hard won, hard fought for knowledge that that we've you know learned throughout the ages, and that it's the knowledge that is the sacred thing that's passed down through the generations, and not the learners who are the most important. I wonder what you think about that perspective. I mean, he's an old-fashioned conservative, isn't he? <laughs> yes, we I mean, know that, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, he, like so many of these people, he's emphasised one side of a two-sided <laughs> question. There you go, we're back to the coin. This is, in fact, again, the, the coin. In a sense, of course, we, we preserve our history, and, um, and that's a very important part of having any new knowledge. Um, and, uh, and in a sense, so there's, there's a relationship. That's why... That's why I like subjects, because for all their limitations, they are traditions that, in fact, have been developed by teachers over, you know, a century or more. And uh, But it doesn't mean that they're not changing now. So I just think that there was, that if you like, Scruton had only got half the, the side, which is, and, and, and regrettably, he took a, he he it was attached to his basically overall conservative view of the world and that's not defensible not in the same way that in fact you know and so i think it's really important to stress that but it's an interesting example i'm not surprised he said it but i don't spend a lot of my time reading roger scruton <laughs> nor do i to be to be perfectly fair but it, example. but it is a, it is a, it's one of those things that sort of you know this idea of a reality tunnel that you sort of you sometimes you, you you have this construction of reality and we all have our own reality tunnel this is an idea that comes from timothy leary and uh, robert anton wilson made it popular that we all have we all construct our own version of reality and i'll come back to this in a moment because the strapline of bringing knowledge back in is from social constructivism to social realism in the sociology of education i'll come back to what those terms mean in a moment yeah. but sometimes you hear a, a view like that one of scruton and that's why i sort of like it because it's like 
that's absolutely from outside of my reality tunnel. The idea that education is not about kids, that it's about preserving knowledge. That's like, wow, what if that's true? And maybe that maybe half of it is true. That's the other side of the coin that I don't often think about. And so I sort of I like things like that, but like you, I wouldn't I wouldn't um, you know uh, overstate the importance of it necessarily. It's just it just threw a spanner in my works, and I thought that's an interesting perspective. No, I mean I, I'm not sure that I fully grasped the, the, the tension there, but I think I'm sure I don't disagree with it. That I mean, in a sense, I mean, somebody Roger Scruton is was set in a in a world that didn't involve kids. You know, he didn't think about what went on in school, I don't think, ever. Yeah. Um, and some people don't think about the context in which the preservation goes on. You don't get much sense of the preservation from Guy Claxton. It's implicit. And, and he would say, well, of course it's Im implicit. We know that. But in a sense, the, tr the problem is to find ways of thinking about something that's both implicit and explicit, that we need to try and make explicit the tradition of a process that is actually here and now. And we need to think about how the here and now has, is what's implicit in that is a tradition of preservation. Yes. And, um, I'm very, when I look, a very good example that I was looking couple years ago at the document for doctoral students, uh, what they had to study and so forth. And across all the disciplines and different fields that in fact people do PhDs in research. And when I looked at all the references and everything down, there was there were no references for anything before 1977. That it was as if you could study education, you could think about education in the last 35 years or whatever. And mm. I think that is that is the opposite of what Scruton was saying. Yes. Yeah. And I I was very shocked actually, because for me, that would say, don't bother about Max Weber, don't bother about Emil Durkheim. You know, they we can ditch them because in fact they didn't even write in 1976. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, so let's just come into some of these bigger ideas. I'm really fascinated to sort of to zoom out a little bit now. Like part of this is going to partly overlap with what we've already been talking about, but it's going to take it into new new territory. Um, yeah. So the strapline, as I say, is is um, of bringing knowledge back in is from social yeah. constructivism to social realism. Could you please just clarify? Try, please try to keep it as, as simple as you can for listeners. But what what do you mean by those terms? And what's this what's this yeah. shift that you were talking about there? When I was putting together, and for many years afterwards, putting together knowledge and control, what I what I started off being concerned about was uh, Bernstein when he was. I went to talk to him about writing an MA dissertation. And I didn't know what to write it on. And he said, well, write it on the curriculum. This is in the sociology masters of ethics. And I, I didn't feel like saying no to him. And I went away and thought about it. There was nothing on the curriculum that had been written by sociologists. There's plenty on the, uh, about curriculum. And I, I had my problem, and it was one that I, uh, expressed in the 
in my dissertation and also in knowledge and control, was what would a sociological focus on the curriculum be? And I came up with the idea that, of course, curricula are like any other institution. They're created by people. They are social constructs. They're, they're, come, they're not divine. They're not given in the material. They're not given in any way. They are only given in history. And therefore, they have a history to them. And so I, I was part of what people were very attracted to at that time, more psychologists in some ways, but not only, um, that the idea that a social constructivist view of the world and of knowledge. Right. And what I, uh, what I came to realise through critiques of my work and slightly wider reading and various kinds of things was that that was not an adequate view of knowledge, that in fact it actually, in a sense, destroyed knowledge because it said everything was in the construction. And, and the thing about knowledge, which relates to scrutiny, is that it has some reality external to what when we think that in fact we we've got a problem, we look for it, some way of looking at it. We don't just look at what people have people have been active in thinking about thinking. We looked at what they've been thinking about. And so I've, I realized that in a sense that, that there has to be in a theory for the curriculum, there has to be a, a reality that is external to our construction, as well as the idea that the, that the knowledge in the curriculum is socially constructed. And so I and my colleague in Cape Town, Joan Wheeler, we came up with this concept of a, a socio-epistemic theory of knowledge. Yes. And a theory of knowledge that in fact combines how it's socially produced historically and also how if it is to be knowledge, it's got to have some criteria, epistemic criteria, that actually uh, you can check out and decide whether it's true or not. Yes. So the two, and I ditched, the, I neglected the first one in knowledge and control, but it tries to be explicit about that in bringing knowledge back in. Right. Thank you. Thank you. And so there's a, there's a bit um, from from the foreword um, to that book by Hugh. Is it Lauder? Do you Hugh Lauder. It? Hugh Lauder, who who writes um, to summarize that shift, which I think is worth sharing with listeners. He says while in his earlier years. Uh, he is obviously talking about you here, could be interpreted as a relativist. And I'd like to come back to relativism and its relationship with postmodernism in a moment, because that's a, a big, important idea that shaped things in recent years, um, arguably very problematically. So it says he could be interpreted as a relativist in his early years in that he viewed knowledge and the curriculum as a manifestation of power rather than having secure grounds in a defensible view of knowledge and that he has now moved on. It says his project is to recognize that knowledge is socially produced, but that it also requires warrant independent of social interests and the related dynamics of power. Uh, to this end, he develops what he calls a social realist account of knowledge, social because it recognizes the role of human agents in the production of knowledge and realist because he wishes to stress the context independence of knowledge and crucially for his views on the curriculum, the discontinuities between knowledge and common sense. That seems to me to be a pretty good um, summary. Well, it's nice to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, great. Um, okay, so so let's talk about relativism briefly. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, do, yeah. do you agree with that? Do you think that it was fundamentally a relativist position that that you that you were occupying in knowledge I, and control? I think that I, I'm. You could have called me in the knowledge control era almost not just a social constructivist, but a deconstructivist. Namely, that in this, uh, there was something progressive and emancipatory if, in fact, you questioned everything that was taken for given. Right. And if you do question everything, then the problem is, which philosophers have pointed out to me since, uh, what about your theory of relativism? Where does that come from? Are you relativist <laughs> about your own theory? And you, you're, you're trapped. You end up by actually not being able to say anything. Um, so relativism is only a kind of methodology for asking questions. It's not a theory of where the questions come from and, and where you might go. And it, it, it's, it's a hopeless uh, uh, if you try and take it like that, because it means that any curriculum is as good as any other. And um, there have been attempts to... I, I was... I don't know whether you want to get onto that at all, but I was, in my career, I was extremely influenced by my experience of working in South Africa um, in the 90s after the release of Nelson Mandela and the legalisation of a democratic movement. And I was invited. I went out there and worked with a number of trade unionists and other people uh, in saying, what kind of education system are we going to have when we've abolished apartheid, which was a, one based upon some very, very strict rules about who, who got what and what knowledge was. And um, I, uh, uh, in a sense, and it was only gradually I realised that they were taking up the knowledge control argument rather than and in the 1990s, because I hadn't certainly articulated an alternative. And um, so they were actually uh, coming up with a, the curriculum as a social construct. Right. And this had a disastrous effect on the schools, because basically it said, teachers, it's up to you. You know, there is uh, for you to interpret the knowledge in the way you like. And... There was chaos in the schools, and they've been real, rolling that back ever since and trying to find a balance between the two. And I realised that the fault of that was, that, that I, I think I realised the fault of social constructivism then, that it doesn't give the post-apartheid or the post-power relation context, it doesn't give any resources to those who are trying to build a new system that is a, a fairer and more just an honest system. And that was very, very, and in a sense, it's a good example from my experience of the combination of the theoretical critiques that were made of my work and the practical experience in South Africa. I, in a sense, needed both. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And so can we link this to the introduction of the national curriculum in this country in 1988? Yeah. Like, do, do you see that as in, in a sort of in a similar vein in that like prior to 1988, it was a free-for-all in terms of what got taught and it was essentially a sort of a relativistic 
experience, which is like if you want to to write a six week scheme around a particular poem or a particular piece of literature that you've come across, that that's equally valid to to other kinds of of curricula. That that there are no external sort of objective measures of what makes for worthwhile or powerful knowledge or the powers that knowledge can have. Do you, do, did you see that in that same way that the national curriculum being introduced was an attempt to instill um, the that respect for the boundaries of of knowledge traditions? I'm trying to think back, I think uh, the national curriculum was about 1988, 1989, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, this is a period when I had almost moved out personally of sociology, and I ran a centre at the Institute called Post-16 Centre, which was concerned with what was happening to kids who were now staying on at school and who didn't know what to do in the schools, schools didn't know what to do with them. And we were trying to devise alternatives and opportunities and so forth. So I wasn't engaged personally at all in the national curriculum issue. Right. Uh, it was a fairly well-intentioned bureaucratic attempt to establish some kind of conformity about what was taught. That, that's all I would say. And it was a lot of opposition um, by teachers. And there was some, what was his name? Uh, what was the Lord? He came up with a, not Devlin, there was a quite well-known uh, sort of official who was given a commission to rewrite the curriculum after it was produced, uh, which in a sense made it much more flexible and teachers were able to cope with it. Um, but there was, um, I, I was not involved in it at all. No, um, but did, did you see it as a positive step? Well, as I say, I was much more concerned with what was happening in vocational education. That right. was uh, my the focus of my research, my writing and so forth was in that period. As you'd find if you looked at a book like, it was published in 1999, The Curriculum of the Future. Yeah, I've got it right here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's mostly about what was happening in the reforms to the post-compulsory stage of education rather yes. than the national curriculum. I it, see. So, I mean... Uh, if you want um, my own view, and I've argued it very strongly in other countries, because a lot of my work came to be about visiting other countries and giving talks. I used to go a lot to Brazil, um, and uh, uh, there was a lot of opposition to any kind of national curriculum in Brazil. And I, I used to, I made several speeches, which made me very unpopular with the the sort of more radical community in Brazil, saying that, in fact, it's essential for any country to have a national curriculum, uh, not only because if, if you move as a, if you're, and, and you take your children to another school, you want to know where your child is going to be in the next school, but also, then in a sense, as a kind of... It, it's a question of how flexible it is, a kind of guide to teachers. Teachers are not... You know, they're not individual professions. They're professions like working in the National Health Service. They work within a, a common framework, and you need a common framework. You can't run away from it. So in that sense, it was progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Right. Yeah. It's, again, it's interesting, and, and having engaged very deeply with your work in the, in recent weeks, it's really helping me to see things from from other perspectives. Um, because, like, yeah, like in, instinctively, I was against the idea um, of uh, there being a preordained set of oh, right. like, yeah. bodies of knowledge. And it just seems like it's restrictive, and that because there is so much that you could learn about that isn't in the national curriculum you know like the amount of knowledge is exploding with like especially through the internet like wikipedia is expanding at an exponential rate and the, the the amount of things that we could be be exploring is you know limitless to to all intents and purposes and there are so many things that we could be teaching kids about in schools like for example these pandora papers that have been out this week about you know the the ways in which the super rich filter money out and and stick it offshore that's important stuff for people to know about and stuff around the climate and the young people that i speak to they often talk about politics and they they want to learn about for example you know what's going on in israel and palestine or yemen or whatever it is places around the world i can remember when i was a kid we, you know we were never taught about the fact that we were in a cold war in the 1980s that wasn't mentioned the british empire was never mentioned there's lots and lots of things that don't appear in that yeah, national probably. curriculum and i and i but i but i'm helping you know your work and this conversation is helping me to see that actually there's a there's a case for a bare bones national curriculum at the very least um but also i think like, like with anything I, I just keep coming back to this idea of two sides of the coin we need to both have have this it's sort of like how you how you learn to become a really good artist you learn how to follow the rules and then you learn how to break them you know you you learn how to how to um you know learn the basics about certain key areas of life but then beyond that um i think that we need to be much more flexible and diverse in in responding to the interests of particular schools particular teachers particular young people so that we have traditional subject disciplines to come back to that earlier point that we were, i think we agree on but also that there should be some space within the school day for interdisciplinarity for exploratory work for letting the kids to you know lift off the lid of what's on the national curriculum and explore what's beyond yeah. no i i mean i i can I completely agree. Of course, the only thing to say, of course, is that uh, it was nothing like as much. I mean, most of, well, all of my school teaching was pre-national curriculum. But it wasn't as much as you, I think, implied. I'm sure you didn't mean uh, as free-for-all as one might think there. It was actually... It, it, there was yeah. a lot of consensus. It uh, it was a different kind of consensus, and it, it was less stipulated. But there was a degree of consensus, and there was more consensus. Though the problem was, and this is the sort of democratic defence of the national curriculum, there was more consensus for the, in quotes, those the more able pupils uh, than the less able. Everything happened among the less able because they didn't matter, did they? And the national curriculum says, at least in theory, they ought to all matter. Yes. Yeah. So the, yeah. The, 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 and um, you know, it, the sixth form curriculum was not at all free for all. Yeah. Thank you for for, for correcting me on that. I think that, I, that I, was I, it was. I, I, 
putting a balance. I don't wasn't disagreeing with you because I didn't think you meant it. No, you're right. I think it was a loose a loose phrase. It was it was definitely not a free for all. But there, there was there was more flexibility. So so um, we'll, we'll close this up in a few moments I've, uh, with, with, the, with the final questions, but there's something that, you, that we've spoken about previously and also that's appeared in your writing about private schools, or as they're referred to, public schools, for, for reasons that I will never understand because they're anything but. Um, but they're back in the news this week because uh, the, at the Labour Party conference, um, Keir Starmer said that, that, that the, the Labour policy is now that they would remove the charitable status of private schools. Um, what's your take on that as a as a policy initiative? Uh, and what's your what's your suggestion about what we should do with uh, with this, the fact that we have this incredibly unequal education system, which is striated between very expensive fee paying schools with incredible resources and everybody else? I mean, I mean, you can't get away from the fact that the that um, if you've got seven or eight percent of uh, pupils going to schools that uh, have fees of about 35 or more thousand a year, that they can do things in the schools that in fact uh, they have a, a um, fund per pupil funding of about five times what the state schools have. And you can do all kinds of things. You can pay teachers more. You can have all kinds of incredibly important extracurricular resources and so forth that in fact um, are so important in the broader education, some things that you touched on earlier. Uh, I mean, it, it's deeply, it's deeply unfair. There's no question about it. And um, I think that um, uh, the, the, school, the, the countries that don't have such a system are unequivocally better for the education of all of them. And the, the examples often quoted is, in fact, Finland. Now, you can't compare Finland too much because it's a much smaller country. But nevertheless, they just don't have those schools. And in fact, and the thing that's always struck me most is that, in fact, what I, I don't think we're going to sort of abolish a, the class structure or elites suddenly in in us no sign of it and i think i might have thought so um many many years ago but uh those schools could not be like some of our state schools are you know i mean i think that that it's a really important step in the resource issue strikes home massively that doesn't mean that the private the public schools have it doesn't mean that that, that they have they have a perfect curriculum to be modelled, which I think is what Gove tended to think. They don't. They have, you know, um, and they would probably admit that, actually. But mm. yes, they have the resources to do remarkable things. In arts, even, you know, get a lot of these people who become leading actors, films and things like that, have turned out to be in those schools and so forth. Yeah. You can't, uh, you you know that is a that that is a reality. And but I see no. I mean, I welcome the minute step that in that 
Obama is putting. And the, the idea of them being charities is bizarre, frankly, just on ethical grounds that, in fact, calling them charities is not really defensible. Um, and um, on any grounds, I, I would like to see much more radical reforms because I don't think that we could have we can have a democratic education system when we've actually got the private schools um, and uh, or the, the public schools. I just don't think that those don't add up at all. Um, uh, and so, but I. Um, it's not an issue that, I mean, it's a political issue. It has educational implications, a political issue. And I don't think that um, the Labour Party has always managed to mess up any attempt to, in to introduce a reform. And it's complex why that's true, partly because a lot of people in the Labour Party have actually been to one of those schools, certainly the leaders, uh, and in fact have sent their children there. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it hasn't been, I mean, it, it is an agenda. It's a bit of an agenda for me, rather like the fact that we have these ridiculous nuclear weapons as if we, they could defend us. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, you know, I mean, um, it, it's not conceivable in any political circumstances, and even less now than a decade ago, that we would see that change and we have to just do what we can within the framework that we've got so i yeah. don't give it a lot of attention but i do think in a sense they can't be part of a democratic culture yes yes and it seems to be clearly the case and it's so endemic isn't it it is so deep rooted into the british psyche that that you know that the, the it's of those i think it's 6 or 7% of people who go to those those schools um, but they are going to occupy something like 40 or 50% of the, or maybe more, I can't remember the statistic, of the, the you know, um, high office and, you know, people in politics, people in, in the judiciary and so on. And so we have this very unfair country where, you know, things are run by a very small number of people who are very privileged. And, and we sort of accept it. And we sort of, you know, I think that like a large reason that Boris Johnson gets away, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg get away with as much as they get away with is because of the way that they speak. People just somehow sort of seem to accept that as right. being a, a, a substitute for authority or for ideas. And we sort of seem to be quite happy. People seem to be quite happy to vote for more of the same, uh, which is perpetually perplexing to me. I think that in relation to that, and I completely agree with you, but I think if I was to give my time again, I, I would try and spend, I might try and spend more time trying to help focus the Labour Party on, in a sense, not neglecting their natural constituency. Because I think uh, that, that, in a sense, what the Labour Party has done is, I mean, they took for years, they took for granted the Scottish vote. Now they've almost completely lost it. They took for granted the Northern vote and danger of losing that, because they didn't actually, they, they became, in a sense, uh, a, a kind of, of a party of the affluent, um, aspiring middle class or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, but if they really wanted to transform things, 
they actually had to bring into them the deny the excluded and the disadvantaged and so forth. Then they've never really they've never really tackled that, you know. Yes. Particularly in the Blair years. Yeah, did you see this program that was started last night? There's a new series that started on the BBC called Blair and Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, it's oh, fascinating. Yeah. It's making me re-examine those questions. It's very one-sided. It's like an insider's view of what happened, and it's quite rose-tinted. Um, it's not really an objective <laughs> account of what happened, but I think that you can see why people are wanting to be rose-tinted at the moment because the current state of the Labour Party is not is not too pretty. Anyway, we're getting away from away from education. Yes. So let's wrap this up. I've got three three questions for you. The yeah. first thing is we've talked a lot about things that you'd like to change. What do you what do you see as the positives? What do you like about what you see that's happening in education currently that you would like to see more of? I think there's some brilliant teachers in the schools. I'm very glad that we are largely a graduate profession and we don't have that divide between teacher certificates, people going to primary schools and secondary schools, graduates going. I think we see those uh, at, which I, I welcome. Um, I, uh, I think there are some excellent people in in some of the schools of education and um and so i think there there are good people no question about it um and i think that we have a long tradition of that's still around of criticism of the fact of the unfairness of our system which you don't find to the same extent in other european countries i used to travel a lot more uh, to Europe than I have in the re- recent years. And and it's always the English researchers who come up with the cr- critical reflections. You don't. And, and that, that's... Uh, but on the other hand, um, what they do have and we don't have on the whole is a proper state system for all students. Yeah. That, that's... You know, that in fact education is... Our education is split between, you know, the private and the public, the church and the non-church, all those compromises that we had because of the history of, 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 of education in this mm. country. And that that is something that has to be struggled with, you know. Um, so, um, you know, uh, I, I know many fine colleagues, uh, you, you know, that, that I've worked with and got to know, but... Um, I'm sad that, in fact, my own discipline has been kind of squashed out of educational thinking to a large extent. And, um, you know, I've done what I could to keep it open, and I still think it's really important. So, um, I mean, there's there's no question of the fact, although I'm retired, that I have given up, and I shall go on doing things, and they're teachers and others, the young teachers. I work with a group of teachers who are focusing on the questions, some of the questions that we've asked. And, um, you know, they're terrific and they're optimistic about what they can do in the future. And really, it's it's them who's going to do it, not me. I, I You know, I can just give them support from behind. Yes, yeah. And I know that so you, there is some really interesting work and you've worked a little bit with Christine Council and other people, haven't you, about, about developing... Uh, curriculum and there is lots of work that's been going on recently around the idea of the, the importance of curriculum 
um which sounds, well, ridic- sounds ridiculous because in a sense that's sort of like all that there is like there's the thing that the school is set up to 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 share which is a, a curriculum whether that is is all about powerful knowledge whether it's all about interdisciplinary yeah. knowledge or recognizing well, the importance of things that, like and that was not always true that was not always true yeah, so that's a positive, I think. And I think that your work has, has been influential. You were very humbly saying earlier that you think that your work has maybe influenced debates around education but hasn't influenced education itself. But I think that in recent years, your work um, has influenced what, what, what has been happening in schools and lots of this work around curriculum and people thinking much more carefully, like you were saying earlier, about how to sequence the curriculum, how to yeah. make it so that this actually is joined up to the real world in a really interesting way, how to relate it to a young person's perspective, but also how to take them out of their, out of their comfort zones. I think that your work has been very influential in that, in that regard. One of the things I most regret, and it looks as though it would probably never return about the COVID period and the lockdown, is that in fact, people don't travel abroad. It was a great education for me from, the 90s onwards, that in fact, that the EU expanded uh, to take into account education and training. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time in Nordic countries and some in France and Germany and Spain and Portugal. And that I'd never ever thought about that before. And that's been a really important thing, education, you know, and things like the Erasmus scheme, which has meant that students can do part of their degrees in other countries. Those are terrific, great things to happen, uh, which were never true. That's why I'm such a profound uh, anti-Brexit person, Yes, uh, which I think is education is a complete disaster, absolutely appalling. You know, we had excellent colleagues, excellent students from countries that we're never going to get again. Yeah. And as we return, at some point, I actually think in the future, we will return to the European Union anyway. I think so. It seems like such a silly thing when people are talking about wanting to get a good trade deal and you think we had the best trade deal that we could possibly have had and we walked away from it. That's kind of what the whole thing was. Okay, um, again, we're, we're drifting into, into wider areas. Uh, what do you see as the major challenges in the current landscape? Well, I think I was thinking about that while you were talking. I mean, I think the major challenge, which has hardly even begun, <laughs> and that is how we actually prepare and educate young people to face up to the climate change issues. Yes. The, the curriculum doesn't do that at the moment, and there's no sense of how it might yet. Climate change is the big issue for whether, in fact, our world is going to survive and whether our grandchildren, great-grandchildren are going to have a world to be on. And uh, this is not... And that needs to be an educational issue and it's be the next generation, not the emeritus professor generation, who's going to initiate that somehow or other, because, in a sense, it's uh, their futures and it's not mine. I mean, I can support them, but I do think... I mean, I'm not an expert or a specialist in it at all, and I think it's important that people who do know about it broaden their their activities. It's so important, I'm sure. Yes, yes, thank you. And so um, to the final question then, and it's touching on what you were just talking about, and, and I absolutely agree, and this is something that's come up again and again in the podcast um, and in my wider conversations, that the environment is the issue and not just climate change, 
but linked to that, the collapse in biodiversity and so on. Um, and so like you, you, you touched on it just now and you were saying that you need, we need to bring in people who do know what they're talking about. Have you had any thoughts about what that might look like? And I, I also think that working with young people to be to, just coming back to the constructivism idea, I think that we sort of need to include young people in this. I, I mean, it's clear that like our generations don't have the answers to this problem or else we would have fixed it. And so the idea that our generation can write a curriculum that will teach the kids how to do that, I don't think that that's going to work. It seems to me that it has to involve the young people as well. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. And what, what, how do you think we might even go about addressing this through education? One of the things that I do think is if you have stronger, a stronger subject curriculum, then the subjects are a resource when they come together to tackle the issues about climate. Right. I think I'd go that way. I mean, I, I think that the issues are interdisciplinary, but the route to the interdisciplinary inquiry that might actually deal with the problem are, in a sense, the subjects. Yeah, so we maybe need to think about reworking the, the subjects, yeah. of, of, in particular science and geography, and I guess history, to make it so that young people are learning the disciplinary knowledge that they need to learn about things like the Arctic permafrost and climate cycles in a way that actually yeah. would equip them to, to solving problems using that knowledge. And that's, that's why the issue that I we, we came back to several times in the earlier part of the interview, the, dis, the, the, the disjunction between the subject knowledge of the curriculum and the experiential knowledge of the pupils has to be seen as a positive basis for going forward, the disjunction itself is positive as well as negative. We have to deal with the negativity, but it is essentially a positive in relation to how we develop it. That, that's critical. Thank you, thank you. And well done for bringing it back around to powerful knowledge in the final, <laughs> the final question. That was, that was a lovely circularity to that conversation. Just as a final question, I haven't asked this before, but I was just wondering, are there any books by other people that you've read that have really shaped your thinking that you think I would actually love to pass that on as a piece of advice for people to to pick up? That's a good question. Um, there was a nice little speech, a short paper in the journal Nature mm -hmm. that I read recently by Paul Nurse. Oh, yeah. Won Nobel Prize and was, I think, the president of the Royal Society. And basically he said, we need, we need more ideas and less data. Uh, wait a minute. He was actually talking about biology, but I think that um, he said, biology must generate ideas as well as data. And he quoted another Nobel Prize winner, Sidney Brenner, and what Brenner said was, we are drowning in a sea of data and starving for knowledge. And that, I think, is a really important lesson, whatever our discipline and field is. Well, Michael, thank you again for, for okay. taking well, the time I to, to, to see what you make of it. <laughs> time.
Thank you.